leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. About 1.3 million people in the United States have type 1 diabetes, which requires constant monitoring and regular injections of insulin. The autoimmune disease attacks the insulin-producing beta cells in the pancreas, and replacement of those cells has long been viewed as an ideal approach to treating the disease. The problem, though, has been finding a reliable supply of replacement cells and protecting them from the body's immune system while allowing them to receive needed nutrients, as well as deliver insulin to the body. San Diego-based Viacide is now in human clinical trials with a promising approach to treating the disease. We spoke to Paul Lakend, president and CEO of Viacite, about the company's cell therapy, its critical financial support from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine and JDRF, and why its investigational product may represent a functional cure. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're, we're going to discuss Biocide, its experimental combination product to treat type 1 diabetes and the promise of cell therapies, but perhaps we should begin with type 1 diabetes itself. What is type 1 diabetes? How does it manifest itself and how is it treated today? Sure. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder. Um, the immune system mistakenly uh, destroys the beta cells, which are cells in the body that are responsible for producing insulin. And insulin is a, a crucial hormone to regulate blood glucose levels. And if blood glucose levels get too high, uh, you can have complications uh, that lead to heart disease, amputations, uh, loss of sight, various other things. If blood glucose levels get too low, you can go into coma and even have death occur. So it's very important that this is a, a very regulated process. So um, the way we treat it, uh, actually uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, insulin was developed as a therapy that could be used for patients with type 1 diabetes. Part of that type 1 diabetes was a fatal disease. Um, insulin injection allowed us to control the blood glucose, but interestingly, for the last hundred years, we really haven't changed the way we, we control the disease, and uh, it requires continuous glucose monitoring uh, throughout the day and in the evening and injection of insulin. We've gotten better at that monitoring. We've gotten better at producing insulin and, and the way it's used, 
But for all intents and purposes, we're still doing the same thing with the same results, which is long-term complications and a big impact on quality of life. You, you mentioned we're the, looking the to do monitoring with, and injections, but managing the disease takes a fair bit of effort. What do patients typically have to think about as they go through their day? Absolutely. So uh, they have to think about what food they're eating, uh, the exercise they're doing. Um, they have to continuously be monitoring their blood glucose levels uh, to ensure they're in a normal range. And if they're not, they need to inject insulin. Um, once they've injected insulin, oftentimes it's very it's very difficult to get it exact. So oftentimes they will now become too low with their blood glucose, and then they will need to take action, uh, having some fruit juice or some other way of raising the blood glucose level. So it's a continuous um, chore to 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 keep your blood glucose levels in line. Uh, if you talk to patients with type one diabetes, they'll tell you it's a disease that never can stop. Uh, your lead experimental product, VC01, is in essence a replacement pancreas. This is a combination of two viocide technologies. Let's walk through each of them. The, the first is the cells themselves. What are they, and, and how do you create a supply? Yes, so you've got that correct. There is two platform technologies, if you will, that make up the product VCO1. So the first is the cell therapy aspect of it. Uh, we start with a stem cell. Uh, stem cell is a, what's called a pluripotent cell. It can become any other cell in the body. And we then go through, in the manufacturing process, a differentiation process that takes that stem cell starting material up to what we call a pancreatic progenitor or pancreatic endoderm cell. So these are cells that are essentially destined to continue uh, maturation to become uh, islets, beta cells, delta cells, alpha cells, cells that make up the, um, the, the important parts of the pancreas that, that regulate blood glucose levels. So once we uh, have those cells, then the question is, what do we do with them? Uh, so the next part of our technology is a way to deliver these cells effectively to the patient. These are human cells. They're human stem cells that we start with, but they're not the patient cells. And so those cells, if we were just to put them in without any device, they would be attacked by the immune system and potentially destroyed. So we needed to protect them against the body's uh, immune system. And the way we do that is what we call a macro-encapsulation device called a captor drug delivery system. The way to think about this is it's, it's like a tea bag. Um, the cells go in. Uh, it allows the free flow of oxygen, nutrients, and even proteins like insulin to go back and forth across a semi-permeable membrane. But what is blocked is any cell-cell interaction. So the cells we put in can't get out, and the host immune cells cannot get in and come into contact with the implanted cell. So and that's how we block the immune system. So how, how big is the device? Where does it go, and, and what happens once it's placed? Yeah, it's, it's uh, relatively small. We have different sizes at this point, at this stage of the clinical development. But the therapeutic, what we call a dose-ranging device, it's very thin, about a millimeter thick um, and flexible, and it's about the size of, say, half of a business card, a little bit smaller than half a business card. 
Um, we also have what we call sentinel devices, which are about the size of your thumbnail. In terms of where they get implanted, it goes under the skin, so what's called subcutaneous. Uh, and we can, we're investigating different locations, uh, back, the flank, arms, legs, or as long as it gets vascularized so that the cells can receive the nutrient oxygen it needs and sense the blood glucose and then release into the systemic circulation, uh, insulin, glucagon, and various other factors, then it doesn't really matter where it goes. And as I understand it, immune system responses to cell transplants in the past have posed a problem. Is this an issue at all? So typically when you do a transplant, what's called an allogeneic transplant, meaning human cells uh, into a human but not the patient cells or an organ or whatever, you use immunosuppression. And in fact, there's a good predicate for what we're doing with using cadaver islets uh, under what's called the Edmonton Protocol where they plant these cadaver islets. And they use immune suppression for uh, the duration of the treatment, in many cases, many years. Um, with our approach, one of the goals is to provide an unlimited source of the cells for implantation, but also to be able to do it without the need for that continuous immunosuppression. And that's what the purpose of the capture drug delivery system. Well, what do we know about the durability of the technology? Does it continue to generate a supply of beta cells, or is it something that needs to be periodically replaced? Um, that's something that we are investigating in the clinical trial. In the animal studies, what we've shown in uh, mainly the mouse model that we use, it's a very effective treatment. When we put these human cells into a mouse, we actually humanize mouse blood glucose level because the human cells regulate the mouse to uh, to what it expects the human level to be, and we can show that they can completely uh, replace the beta cells in the mouth uh, in terms of controlling that blood glucose. In terms of how long it might last, uh, in the mouse it lasts the life of the mouse. It's still functioning at the, at the end of life of the mouse, but the, this particular strain of mouse only has a lifespan of about one year. So all we can say from the preclinical work is that it's still effective out of one year in the animal model. In the humans, we're investigating that. Um, the trial that we're running right now will continue uh, treatment for two years or longer, um, and uh, we'll be very interested to see how effective it is at that point in time. Do we know anything about the product at this point in terms of its use in humans? Uh, in terms of what we've seen from the clinical trial? Yeah. So to date, right now we're in... Um, what we call the first cohort or the first group of patients that we treated. Uh, it is what's called a subtherapeutic treatment, meaning that we're giving a relatively low dose of cells, not, not designed to provide clinical efficacy, but to do a couple things for us. One is to demonstrate that it's safe and well tolerated at this dose before we go to an increased dose because this, we really are pioneering this field. We, no one has ever done what we're doing for patients. So we need to start low and, and show safety. The other thing that this first cohort is doing for us is it's really giving us the uh, opportunity to develop the implantation procedures uh, and the way that, that we do this to ensure that the cells engraft appropriately. Um, 
So we use these sentinels that I mentioned earlier, these small device, cell-built devices in the size of your thumbnail. Uh, we implant up to six of those in each patient, and we withdraw those periodically to evaluate how the cells are doing, whether they are surviving, uh, whether they're proliferating, so um, increasing in number, and whether they are vascularizing and differentiating to the endocrine tissue, including beta cells and producing cells. So um, we just reported some results at a, at a recent uh, event and showed that, uh, in fact, in most recent patients, we've seen good cell survival, uh, proliferation, vascularization, and differentiation. So we're, we consider that an important proof of principle uh, for translating what we see in the animal to the human. Still have work to do to make that robust and to move on to show efficacy, but it certainly is a, a good step in the right direction. Well, in addition to traditional venture backing, you've had a substantial bit of funding from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, the voter-created California Stem Cell Agency. How much funding has it provided, and how critical has it been at advancing this technology? Yeah, we've been very fortunate to um, have the support of both the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine and the JDRF, the largest worldwide organization focused on uh, patients with type 1 diabetes and looking for a cure. Um, so between those two groups, uh, CIRM has uh, invested uh, about $56 million into the project to date, uh, JDRF about $13 million. Um, in addition to the financial resources both these groups bring, they also bring a lot of expertise and uh, uh, help with us on the regulatory side and other matters. So we've been very fortunate to have this. It's been helped us move this forward. In fact, it's been critical to kind of get us through the, um, you know, the initial preclinical work and then into the clinic. You also did a $20 million financing with Janssen. This included a convertible note and a rights fee for the company to evaluate a transaction related to VCO1. Can, can you explain that transaction and why the structure it took? Sure. So Janssen, through their J&J Development Corporation, has been an uh, investor in Biosite um, for a number of years now. Um, and in fact, is our single largest investor in the company. Uh, about um, a year and a half ago, we did a transaction with them where uh, they, as you said, invested an additional twenty million in the form of a upfront payment and a, a convertible note. Uh, for that, what they received is uh, a right of first refusal. So basically, it says if we were to do a transaction uh, during the time of this right of first refusal, we would have a, a obligation to uh, at least show it to them, give them an opportunity to participate. I, I, I stand corrected on my Americanized pronunciation. <laughs> you just completed another transaction with Janssen regarding the assets of the company, Betalogics. What, what did you do, and, and what's the significance of that? Yeah, that, that was really exciting. As I mentioned, they've been a long-term investor in this, but interestingly, they have also been our number one competitor. Uh, they set up a company called Betalogics um, over a decade ago, and Betalogics has really been focused on the same uh, 
target that we have, uh, developing a stem cell-derived therapy uh, to essentially cure type 1 diabetes. Um, so we've been working in parallel, if you will. Um, they have uh, been a few years behind us in terms of getting to the clinic, but have been you know, developing a lot of technology, a lot of intellectual property, uh, as have we. Um, you know, I think what occurred is once we made it into the clinic, I think Janssen recognized that we are the, the, the absolute leaders in this space, and uh, we decided in discussions with them to combine these two efforts right, and try to compete against each other, to combine these two efforts, bring all of the know-how and intellectual property that they have developed over those years to bear on, on the work we're doing to to help us to assure that we're successful in bringing an important new therapy to patients. Well, should you be successful, what do you think this will do for the future of type 1 diabetes? How, how dramatic a change do you think this will be? I think it's pretty dramatic. As I said, there's really been no change in the way diabetes is managed over the last 100 years. I think this would be the first major change in it. And it really, what we call a functional cure, and the reason we don't say cure is because, um, as I said, we don't know how long this will last. We will likely need to replace it at some point implant additional cells. But from a, a perspective of a patient, um, you know, I think we take the disease which went from a fatal disease to a chronic disease 100 years ago and now turn it into a disease that patients don't even have to think about. So the goal is to make these patients completely independent of insulin and remove the, the requirement of constant monitoring, remove the requirement of constantly being concerned about diet, exercise, and food need to continuously inject insulin. And that, by the way, also removes the complication of insulin, which is hypoglycemia, which is a constant worry with diabetic. So I really do believe this has the potential. We still have to show that, but we believe it has the potential to really transform. Paul Likens, President and CEO of Visite. Paul, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.